Well, I want to thank uh, the students and uh, Dr. Ye for inviting me to share these words with you, a reflection uh, on our scriptures today. Um, I will be speaking out of my tradition, Presbyterian tradition, with a little bit of ecumenical parlay along the way. So Jesus tells us the wind blows where it will. But can even this wind stand against the winds of fury that swirl around us stronger even today? Winds of religious hatred that blow away mosque, church, and synagogue from New Zealand to Sri Lanka to California. Winds of flame that melt one of the greatest cathedrals only to expose the rich and famous who parade to the rescue while the vested laborers and working poor they neglect march on. Winds of white supremacy that quarantine black lives in our jails and non-white immigrants at our borders, lives that do matter. Winds of male privilege that dismiss the voices of women and children, denying claims of abuse or harassment. Jesus warns us, the wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. There is a play on words here in this line, according to Raymond Brown, between wind and voice, especially in the Aramaic. The sound of the wind has a voice within it. And in contrast to the dissonant voices in the winds of fury, voices of religious hate, of opulent domination, of normed whiteness, male privilege, the voice in this spirit wind is a voice of just love, grace, transformation. So here comes Nicodemus, a Pharisaic scholar, member of the High Council, man of wealth. Remember, he brings all the spices to the tomb, and it's a bundle load. So he, has the, he had some money. He seeks to learn more from this rabbi, Jesus. Who is this fellow? Nicodemus the saint, as in the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church? Or Nicodemus trying to play both sides? Somebody who's wealthy and powerful, pretending in the night to either follow or try to understand this rabbi, Jesus. Nicodemus became the, a term that Calvin and others used against pretenders in his own day. Courtly pretenders pretending to piety. Wealthy people hiding their Protestantism in a Catholic kingdom. They were called Nicodemites. But either way, saint or pretender, Jesus admonishes this Nicodemus to seek the heavenly power that can grant him rebirth. Jesus stresses the radical freedom of this spirit power, a wind that blows where it chooses, from mystery to mystery, like a voice that echoes through a canyon. We don't know where it comes from or where it is going. We cannot plan for or control this spirit, this female-gendered ruach, this non-gendered pneuma, for he, she, is wild and free. Jesus tells Nicodemus of this spirit because it is the source of power for being born from on high, being born again. I once met a scholar from Alabama, where my people came from, who claimed while in an old Jerusalem bookstore to find an old prayer book that had phonetic markings about how to read the Nicodemus story. And he claims the markings said this, Nicodemus, 
Do not marvel that I say unto you, you must be born again. Then there's a little uh, side uh, marking in the margin. Clearly, Jesus got this saying from the Baptist. <laughs> uh, wouldn't that be fun? Well, the Baptist got the Duncan in the early church, right? Why not this, huh? Being born again, though, while joyful, is a serious matter. Jesus says this rebirth in the Spirit is the key to understanding salvation and essential to the path of discipleship. So what about sacramental regeneration, important to so many liturgical traditions? Reformed Christians have shied away from saying that the sacraments in and of themselves regenerate us. Instead, the tradition, my tradition, has claimed the sacraments impress the gospel upon us again and again. They are signs and seals that mold us into the likeness of Christ. That by the Spirit's power, every act of sacrament, sacramental life shapes us further into what Calvin called a mystical union. No mere symbol here. But not quite a regenerating means of grace. So the life of rebirth from this tradition's point of view, is an active life, a just-filled life. It's not so much a program, not like a program of virtues, of building capacities within yourself to do good. Calvin was suspicious of those programs because they tended to flaunt one's goodness or, or to hide a kind of self-justifying way of life. Instead, some have said that the tradition has more of a command ethic or a Torah ethic, that it looks to the law of Israel once in the life of the Spirit, where the law is no longer a mirror of our own sinfulness alone, but also almost like a window onto a new path, a way of life in Christ. It becomes a tutor and a guide. So repentance, despite uh, Calvinists are dilly-dallying with the ontological depravity of all human beings, repentance is really not about that for Calvin. In fact, grace takes care of this. Repentance is about the active turning again and again against the old ways of life that still hold on to us, the old self that grace has already whipped up and set aside. We just have to live into that reality. Repentance, in fact, in, my, uh, in our day and time, I think it, it allows us to claim the winds of fury that have kept us tethered to our old selves a naming that we can do only because we are released from them by the free grace of God. Repentance is a turning toward the new self that is reborn with every act of just love, sometimes small acts of kindness or generosity towards people who do not look like us, sometimes the great acts of calling out whiteness, calling out male privilege when we see them at work or see them in ourselves. Calvin believed that life in the Spirit is chiefly active, not contemplative. He didn't discount that, but action and faithfulness and following God's call was the key. For he writes that in the Spirit, we raise ourselves up, we take courage, we recover um, our heart, and we return from death to life. Repentance is an active, ongoing movement in our lives. A lifelong dance, if you will, turning and turning 
from sin towards the Spirit, a kind of twirling in the winds of the Spirit, which calls us to be free from the powers of sin and wild in our acts of just love. Part of my family grew up Baptist, so i got to say this now. How much do the winds of fury claim your life at present? How much do winds of religious hate or bias creep into your speech? Perhaps not about Muslims or Jews, but what about those born-again Bible-toting types? I'm guilty. How much do the winds of finance control your indebtedness or determine the investments you or your pension funds in the denomination or elsewhere make? I'm guilty. How much do the winds of assumed whiteness strangle others around you or choke your own humanity? Or perhaps have choked you as a person of color? I know I have succumbed. How much the winds of gender privilege infect your own relationships at work, at home, at worship? I have not only succumbed, I have participated. This Eastertide, I have created a practice of naming two of these winds of fury for myself. White supremacy, male privilege, long part of my southern Texas Confederate legacy. My middle name is named after a Confederate veteran. I've claimed these as a way to expose the power of these winds of fury within me and my complicity in them, to seek the Spirit's guidance of how to turn away from them again and again toward new ways of acting in just love with Christ. So my friends, if these winds of fury taunt your life, rip at your life, push at your life. Remember that in Lent, we practiced repentance on the way to Golgotha. But now that Lent has given way to the light of Easter morning, perhaps this act of repentance is made even more complete and continues. For as Calvin said, we do not really know the power of sin until we walk in the light of grace. Amen.